Everyone talks about building up brand loyalty and all these things that will distract and entertain people. But at the end of the day, we only stay where we feel we're valued. And if you don't have people around to do that, you're in real strife. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses, many of them accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% savings for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Filex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar, at filex.com.au. Paul Brown, a.k.a. Mr. Retention, has been at the forefront of member retention research and practical solutions since 1995. Here, he chats with the fitness industry podcast Oliver Kitchingman about making members want, not just need, exercise, keeping services in-house for the good of your brand, and helping clients switch their focus from how exercise makes them look to how it makes them feel. Welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Thank you, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Paul, before we get started, just a little bit about yourself and your background. When and how did you get started in the health and fitness industry? Wow. You know, I started at 16 years of age. I broke my ankle playing football, and after three months in a cast, I discovered what atrophy is. And so I limped into a a local police youth club and started lifting weights to regenerate the muscles that I'd lost in those three months in the cast. And it was my first introduction to the miracle of healing through exercise. And so I I became very passionate about it very early on. And that particular gym offered me a role as a supervisor. And I became a head supervisor and then I became on the management. By the time I was 20, I was a general manager of a large fitness centre. And uh, I made the promise I'd open up my own club, which I did at 24 and never looked back. So I guess as as a teenager, I fell in love with fitness. And then as a young adult, I found a way to make it a living, which has been brilliant. And your living is as Mr. Attention? Well, these days, yes. These days I apply everything I've learned about getting people into the habit of exercise and getting them over their fears and proving to them it actually does work. So I I, I stumbled across a formula about 23 years ago that seems to make the difference. And thankfully enough, there's a lot of clubs out there who want that formula and they keep me very, very busy. You first joined Network as a member back in 1989 when Network was only... uh, Two years old? Two years old? 89. 89, yeah, 89, yeah, yeah, when uh, Network was in its infancy. Yes. And the industry was, you know, as a professional organisation, as a professional industry was in its infancy. And, I mean, since that time you've spoken at Network and Filex events and, and many other international fitness and health conferences and conventions around the world. How's the industry changed in, in that time? Oh, look, the best way to say is just like the fashion industry, Oliver, things come and go. We get excited about something for a while and it's all got a central goal of keeping people active and having fun. I think for a long time there in the 80s and 90s, we went through a stage of trying to be absolutely technically perfect. And so the word contraindicated was the theme of the day. And we got very strict about what we can and can't do. Took a lot of the fun out of it, honest. I'm seeing in recent years all the things that once contraindicated are now back in fashion. So all the moves that we thought would be bad for you actually proved to be the best workouts of all. So everything old is new again. We go around in circles, but as long as the people in front of us are willing to trust and listen to us, I think the fitness industry continues to grow and thrive. And does the same go for member attention and for customer service? Retention is getting worse. We've seen the role of the paid gym instructor is almost a species of extinction. 
And, you know, the, the direction of going away from having employees and allowing contractors or doing trade-offs, unfortunately, has had a pretty negative effect on the volume of clients seeing people in person. It's starting to really bite. It's starting to get to the point where a lot of people think that a gym is more like a vending machine, whereas we used to think of ourselves as a high-service, full-service industry. Perception of the community is now maybe not so much. And for some people, that's perfect. That's exactly what they want. And I myself are quite happy to go into a gym and not be helped by anybody. But I'm seeing a bit of a downturn in client retention where clubs simply don't have the manpower on board to build relationships. And you're becoming a commodity. You don't have that loyalty. You don't have that connection with your clients. And everyone talks about building up brand loyalty and all these things that will distract and entertain people. But at the end of the day, we only stay where we feel we're valued and if you don't have people around to do that, you're in a real strife. So is it a real people issue? I, I, well, I think it's a real people opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think for those businesses that recognise that and have seen that trend and are now taking advantage of it by being a standout business and having the right people on board, they're winning that battle. And for those who are struggling right now to, to, to grow because every membership they sell is only replacing the one they just lost, first place to start is why did those people leave in the first place and did anyone even notice that they were gone? Mm-hmm. So what was it that first kind of got you interested in the area of retention as opposed to maybe sales or other areas of business areas of fitness? Well, as a gym owner in my early 20s, I had to become a master of selling. And so I like to think that I could, I could sell reasonably well. And it never dawned on me until I sold my business just how many members we'd gone through in the six years that I owned that gym. Because when I looked at the number of memberships on our database that we were selling and compared that to the number of memberships we'd sold over those six years, clearly one didn't match the other. And I had businesses contacting me to help them once I sold my club, and we're talking like mid-90s. I had businesses contact me to say, hey, can you come and help us with sales and marketing? Because, you know, I'd won some marketing awards even through network, and, you know, we'd been known for selling. But the more I looked at their businesses, I said, they're not bad at selling at all. They're actually quite good. And some of their marketing is very slick. But the trouble was, again, every membership they were selling was simply replacing the one they'd lost. So as an outsider looking in in the mid-90s, I was able to recognize that a number of businesses had a retention issue at a time when the word retention was never used. You said retention, you thought you had ankles swelled with water, right? So when I started to focus on that, and I, I actually did a study, uh, 1995, cooperation with one of our clients, And we identified why people were quitting. And I said to that business, I'd like to develop a program that meets that head on. They gave me the chance to do that. And it was an instant worker. It worked straight away. And so within months, I was offering that program to a number of other gyms. And then I realized I was really onto something. Now, it was very much in its infancy, very raw. But the principles we applied from the beginning that worked are the very same principles we apply today. We just do it with a lot more sophistication and we're able to do it on a much larger, more scalable way. Okay, well, I guess that brings us to the nuts and bolts of our chat today, really. The holy grail for fitness business operators is retention. So have you got a few sort of essentials of retention that you can share with us? Sure. Well, the presentation I gave here at Filex this year, I started off with my definition. And that five-step definition really sums it up, if I'm honest, Oliver. Step number one, if you want to retain somebody in your business, they have to want the product you've got. And that might sound like a bit of a strange statement, but a lot of people don't want fitness. They want to look and feel great, but they're willing to pay for a tummy tuck to do that. They're willing to buy a vitamin to do that. They're willing to rub a cream on to do that. We've got to get people to recognize that activity, movement, and in a concentrated effort in our environment is indispensable. 
And I really believe resistance training is one of the things that just about everybody needs to go to us for because you can do push-ups in the park and a few chin-ups on a rail, but nothing substitutes the time efficiency and the global effectiveness of a body workout on the kind of equipment that only our clubs can provide and then the expertise on how to use that. So we have to really educate people that they should want exercise. That's number one. Get them to want exercise. Number two, they then have to understand how and why they're doing it. So the understanding how, I think a lot of people out there would go, well, we have great trainers who show them the right technique and the good form and good range of movement, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but the how's also how to pack a bag to make sure you've got your workout kit in the car with you before you head out of the office. You know, how to block off your diary to make sure you've got the time sacred to set aside. How to remind your significant other you'll be home late for dinner because you're going to the gym first. There's a lot of hows necessary to make fitness a behavior. And so step number two, we know you want fitness. We now have to teach you how to make it part of your life. The third thing we then need to do is we need to make sure that when they're doing it, they're doing it often enough to get the value from their membership or the value from the price they're paying for their sessions and the results that they're getting from it. And I don't know that there's enough emphasis on absolutely hard and fast setting non-negotiable minimums. And so if you can help your clients to get that routine, so again, it, it, it is not consuming your life. It's not an hour and a half, five days a week, which a lot of clubs make the mistake with. It's that non-negotiable 30 minutes, more days than you don't. And that's the third one you have to do is get people to use it often enough. Then you've got to prove that it works. You have to be willing to do quantified benchmarks the very first day you start working with them. Oliver, where are you now? What's your lifestyle now? And how do you feel? What do you feel like when you wake up in the morning? What are your energy levels like on a typical day? Yes, we'll measure your blood pressure. Yes, we can do a body fat analysis. But how's your confidence when you're in the gym environment? There are a whole bunch of mindset and what we call feel-good factors that we should be quantifying the very first day because you'll forget how crappy you used to feel once we get you active. And we need to go back. We need to remind you, Oliver, six weeks ago, you said this, this, and this. Now you're telling me this, this, and this. Isn't that great? Look what you've achieved. Look how much you've come. Look how far you've come. Do not go back to that. Or better still, do you want to go back to that? Hell no. Great. Well, let's look at the habits you've developed. Let's keep those habits going because now you know the consequence of not doing it and you know the reward for getting it done. So step number one, they've got to want fitness. Step number two, they've got to know how and understand it. Step number three, do it often enough that they get the reward and get the value from what they've invested. Step number four, prove it's worth the effort. Prove it's worth the effort with the results checks. And then step number five, if you do all those things, they can and should become so addicted to you, they don't want to go anywhere else. So it's a loyalty factor. Now, you've got to really embed your brand in them along the way. They have to know who's delivering this. And that's why... A lot of people out there won't want to hear this, but I'm not a big fan of outsourcing service. I believe that the people who deliver this transformation should wear your logo, should wear your uniform, should represent your business. They should not be an outsourced provider. As good as they are, I believe in a a membership business, the business should own the relationships and people will come and go. And that's, that's totally uncontrollable. But the loyalty should be to the brand and to the logo. So if your team deliver this, representing your business as the faces on that team change, the business will survive. But if you've got your football club and all it's about is your your special player and that player moves on, the club goes with it. Okay, a lot to think about there, Paul. I mean, you you mentioned that delivering results is paramount, which of course it is because if people aren't getting results, then why why are they even there? 
But you, you mentioned feelings as well, which is an important thing. You know, how are you feeling now after six weeks as opposed to how are you looking now? But I mean, a, lo- a lot of the industry focus is, of course, on appearance. Is it responsible and even safe for industry to be so focused on that? Well, it's neither responsible nor safe to focus on vanity, but it is true. They come to us for vanity. They come to us thinking, I've seen a pretty girl and I want to look like her. I've seen a guy with a six-pack and I want one like that too. They associate their identity as being better if they could look better. And I think it's fair to say we're never going to get away from that desire, but we have a responsibility very quickly to turn around that focus, to say, hey, Oliver, the best thing about coming to our club is not how great you look, but how great you feel. Yes, a lot of our members do tell us they feel they, they look better and they're wearing clothes they haven't worn before. But the best thing about that is the confidence that comes with wearing those clothes. You know, very few people are going to walk, walk up and pinch you on the bottom when you've got a firm bottom, right? It just doesn't happen. We all dream of that one day. I don't know anybody's got a great butt that actually gets that. And in fact, probably it's inappropriate these days. But my point is the confidence that comes with saying, wow, I'm back in those jeans again. Or wow, I'm able to bend over and do that, touch the toes. Or wow, I'm able to go up those stairs and not need to use the handrail. Wow, I can go back in the garden and my back doesn't hurt anymore. So it's very important that we quantify with that client, what's not in your life right now you wish was? What can't you do right now you'd like to be able to do? What feelings do you have that you wish would improve? Now, one of those feelings might be the feeling of being overwhelmed with stress. We all know that chemically, the body reduces natural endorphins that fight the stress response that we have in life. And we could talk all day about the the philosophy of where where we were a 1,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago and how our body evolved to the lifestyle we now live. But here's the bottom line. We don't get to fight anymore. And so any response is built up. It pents up, whether that's a battle in the office, whether that's a, a battle in a relationship, whether that's a battle with a traffic light. Whenever things don't quite go away, we don't have an outlet unless we do exercise. So we need to show people these are the benefits that you'll get. You may not see it when you get dressed. You may not see it in the mirror, but they're equally, if not more important. So what I would say to everybody out there is understand how your client thinks and feels when you first get started. And then in a relatively short space of time, four, five, six weeks, compare them again, ask them the exact same protocols and say, you've probably forgotten, but last month you only gave yourself a three out of 10 for that. Now, what that meant was blah, blah, blah. And now this is where you're at. And they go, oh my God, you're right. And I'll give you a little example. If I said to you right now, Oliver, on a scale of one to 10, how often do you get back pain? A 10 out of 10 means you never get back pain. Your back is very healthy. And a one out of 10 means you live with back pain. So your back health is low. I always try to set the numbers so a high score is a good score. Mm. So we're, so we're going to you're, you're flipping it around there. Exactly right. Expecting. Because it's a mindset thing. So is your back healthy? 10 out of 10 healthy? Mm. Or one out of 10, I'm having surgery after this interview. Now, you might say to me, well, Paul, I get back pain occasionally. So maybe that's a, a six or a seven out of 10. Well, if I get you stronger over the next four to five weeks, if I strengthen your erector spina, if I get your core a little bit more developed, if I get you to sit up straight and uh, I get you to stretch a little bit after your workouts, you'll have greater range of mobility and greater postural condition. And I ask you the same question. Hey, Oliver, on a scale of one to 10, how often do you get back pain? Oh, no, no, no back pain. That's interesting. You know, five weeks ago, you only gave yourself a six out of 10. In fact, I've written down here that every time you went out gardening, you couldn't get up. And you'll say, oh, oh, I forgot. Oh, you're right. And in that moment, I've got to say, don't ever go back to being that person. We know who that person was. They didn't exercise. They overworked. They had terrible posture. They sat in a horrible chair at work. We've made three or four simple changes, but number one, we've got you stronger and made your muscles longer. 
Don't ever go back to who you were. So it's absolutely critical that we don't focus on vanity as an ongoing means of proving their identity is worthwhile. We've got to take away looking good and replace it with feeling good. But if they come in and say, I want a six-pack and I want a bicep, we can't turn them away and say, sorry, you've come to the right place. We'll say, well, that's that's actually a symptomatic side benefit of training regularly. Most people yeah. exercise do actually look a bit more athletic. Can't tell you exactly what your body type will be because that'll depend on a lot of factors. But I do know this, four, five, six weeks from now, you're going to tell me you feel amazing. And there's not a book you could read, there's not a pill you could take, there's not a cream you could rub on that could do better. You talk about the, the six-week follow-up there. I mean, that's like when you've got a new client coming in. And is that does that become an ongoing thing then? Is that every – you're checking in every six weeks with a similar kind of update or four, four to six weeks? Well, let me break this down. Firstly, there are a lot of people out there right now that are personal trainers. They're running small studios or boutique facilities. I'd actually measure them. I'd be measuring my clients weekly. Now, let me quantify. I don't mean weigh them every week. I don't mean measure their waist every week. I would be recommending that every week as part of my training sessions, we would do some type of benchmark that we did about a month ago and we revisit that bench. So let's just say this is week, week waste. So week waste, every four weeks we measure your waste. Just this is a really simple term. And our goal is you're trying to lose three or four centimetres off your waist to get back into a pair of jeans because you're going on a holiday and you want to feel great. So we've identified that every four weeks we're going to measure your waist with a tape measure, just a simple measurement, and see if it's going up or down. Right, and then week two, we might call blood pressure and heart rate week. So a week after we measured your waist, we check your blood pressure and resting heart rate. And we want to make sure that your systolic blood pressure is slowly coming down because you told me you get a bit stressed at the office and one of those indications was you felt a bit red and a bit hot in the head sometimes. So I'm checking your blood pressure every four weeks. Not the same week I measure your waist, I do it a week after. But that means that every four weeks we're re-measuring those benchmarks. You get the idea? And week three might be flexibility. So we're doing some stretching together to improve your range of motion and try to relieve that tightness in your back. So guess what? Every fourth week we do a sit and reach test, a very simple straightforward test, and we see whether we're getting one or two centimetres further. Now, these are very rudimentary tests. They're not very technologically advanced whatsoever, but they say a lot to the client that I am monitoring your journey. Every week you've got good news. Every week something to train for. And that chews up a little bit of our training session time, which means I'm more valuable to you. And we've always got a reason to talk. And so if you said, well, yeah, the reason my waist measurement hasn't changed is because my girlfriend and I broke up and now I'm doing the cooking for myself and I really don't know what to eat. Well, that starts off with a whole new conversation. So these weekly check-ins are a real way to say, so how you doing? How you doing? Now, in a club environment, that's not necessarily going to work that way. So we tend to bundle those measurements up and encourage it about every six to eight weeks, which is about when you should be looking to change a program to maintain the adaptation, the mental variety, and again, the opportunity to engage and see if there's anything else we can do for you. Well, you say that over the last 22 years or 23 years of doing this, the, the the core of the of what needs to be done has stayed the same, but your your methods have changed. So, how does technology fit, fit in with with this gauging gauging how clients are progressing? Sure. Look, in two thousand two, we wrote our our software program. So we've been using software now for sixteen years to make sure that everybody has their next stage scheduled with one of our coaches in our programs to make sure the right resources are prepared ahead of time to benchmark and track their results. And so, so we've long believed that technology is very important. Of course, nowadays you've got far more technology. You've got the ability to digitally educate people. You've got the ability for online video. So we're now using QR codes. We give out an information sheet regularly to each of our clients. So if you and I were talking about 
about eating habits and nutrition today, and you'd be going home with a checklist that we went over together. And that's a paper checklist because it's something you and I would work on and we'd be circling and ticking and making notes. But then from a technical point of view, you could zap the QR code on that sheet and watch a video which summarizes most of what we said. So the millennials are watching that on their phone, whereas probably people more of my generation or just people who prefer to have something touchy-feely will, will like that checklist themselves. So technology for us doesn't replace what we've done. It certainly doesn't replace the human interaction. My business is called face-to-face retention systems for a reason. We get people in front of people. The technology, that's to make that happen, whether that's scheduling, reminding of those appointments, giving a summary of information. But what we don't try to do is teach people how to drive a car by email. Yeah. So when we say drive a car, that's my analogy. You want to learn to drive your body. You want to learn how to use our equipment, enjoy our classes, and to follow some of the other lifestyle habits. We don't rely on a one-way communication tool to do that. Our, our education is two-way. Tell, show, feedback, questions, response, try. All those things that happen when two people get together, or one on two, one on three even, the face-to-face element. But the technology is a wonderfully useful tool for tracking our success on that and for initiating the contacts necessary to get those two people in the same place at the same time. So apart from your own presentations and your own, uh, your own work with face-to-face retention, where else do you suggest that club owners and operators and, and PT studios and anyone with a fitness business really go to find resources and information to help them with their attention? Well, obviously, as you said, I've been a network member since 1989. I obviously greatly believe in the education the network provides. So number one, take advantage of those resources. I've been guilty of it too, whereas I don't keep up to date with all the stuff that's available to me. So first and foremost, look at the resources that are readily available. And then at an event like Filex, I do notice that some people have a habit of just slotting into the same old sessions. You know, if they're a personal trainer, they always go to the next functional training workshop on how to do the kettlebell, or they always go to the next TRX workshop. And they're important. But as a personal trainer, you've got to be a businessman. And so maybe you need to get yourself into the business sessions. You know, take off the, the lycra and take off the short sleeve shirt dress up a little bit and go and go and learn what it's like to actually run a business and to think about the marketing, think about the sales skills, think, of, think about tracking the KPIs. You know, I, I told you at the beginning, I didn't start out educated as a gym manager. I had to become one to survive, but I always wanted to build a business that would let me scale what I do. And the more books that I read, the more people I turn to with questions and the more seminars I attend, the better I get at that. So I would say to everybody out there, You've got a certain set of skills, continue to develop those, but ask yourself, what other hats do I wear on a daily basis? And very often, and if you read the e-myth, this is a great example of this, very often the technician doesn't need to be a better technician. They need to learn how to be a better businessman, better negotiator, better human resources manager. So Filex is one of those great conferences where you get the blend of business and technical skills at the same time. Absolutely. It's not, it's not enough to just be very skilled and passionate at what you're delivering you need to be you need to be running your business properly absolutely 100 and a lot of trainers unfortunately when they go into their own studio or their own business because they don't understand this the stress of running the business affects their ability to be a good trainer and so it's actually a double-edged sword there the reasons you got into it actually become the reasons you resent so once again uh, seek out the help of the people who've done it before and get to those seminars from the experts and and life just gets a lot easier 
Paul, you travel the world constantly, consulting with clubs. Uh, I know South America, Asia, all over Australia and Europe too. I Europe, think. North America, yeah, North America, everywhere. Okay, so you you are all over the world. I mean, it must come as a bit of a cost to you and your family. So, are there any plans to wind things down after after all these years in the business as Mister Attention? I'm definitely not going to wind things down. You know, I, I believe that you know, retirement is six months away from death, and I, I'm going to put off that that process for as long as possible. My family do deserve more of my time and they're going to get it. They come with me to some of the great places, pretty well everywhere in the world that I've been to. My son and my wife have been there at one point or another, so they don't get left behind too much. What I would say is this, I I am at a a stage now where I'm really trying to empower other people to know what I know so that they can expand and grow that process. So my key clients now, when I work with it, let's say I work with a group of clubs here in Australia, going out of my way to make sure their best people know just about as much as I do in that process so that if I'm not around or I'm not available, that that work can still continue. That's so I'm trying to make sure that the legacy survives. But you know, I've got many, many, many years ahead of me yet. All of a sudden, I don't take my seat just yet, champ. <laughs> Very happy to hear it, Paul. Any other, any other advice on retention tips or anything that anyone needs to be thinking of to just be delivering a better service to their customers that is going to, going to result in greater retention? I have two words that sit above my desk. I have an office up in Paradise Point, five minutes from my home, and I love being there. And I start every day by reading these two words, passion persuades. If you are genuinely excited about what you do, you will be a great advertisement for yourself. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit cliche these days, but the, the, the key to success is to find something you really love doing, that you're really good at, and there's a demand for it. I kind of got lucky that I, I stumbled across fitness as a 16-year-old, but every decision I've made ever since was deliberately designed to enable me to be the best I can be at the thing I fell in love with at a young age. I knew fitness was my journey. I'm a fully qualified structural engineer. I did a five-year trade while I was becoming a qualified fitness instructor. So I did eight hours a day's work building stuff, and then at night, I would go and build bodies. And that was, my fir- that was the first six years of my career. I knew which of those two was my passion. I knew one would pay the bills if it didn't work out in the gym industry, but once I realised the gym industry was not a fad like my parents insisted it was, there was no holding me back. Whatever it is you're good at, really good at it, make sure there's a need, number one, make sure there's a need, and then become the best you can be at it and then be as excited to anyone you meet. Don't ever take excuses. Don't ever listen to someone say, yeah, that's okay, but in my world there are no buts. Fitness is an essential part of life. There are many ways to get it done, but my passion for it will always shine through. Passion persuades. Paul, I think you've convinced us all there. Your passion is shining through. So thank you very much for, for talking with us today on the Fitness Industry Podcast. If people want to find out more, where can they go? Well, I'm kind of busy, so don't bother. <laughs> no, no, that's terrible. All joking, look, if people have questions, if they'd like to ask me questions, just shoot me an email. My name, Paul Brown at MrAttention.com. I'd be very happy to answer the questions. It's not a problem. Paul, thanks again. My pleasure, Oliver. Thank you. And keep up the great work, my friend. To grow the success of your fitness business, learn from the industry experts in Network's online business skills courses, accredited for CECs and other continuing education points. Go to the Network website, select the Courses tab and click on Business. Network members save up to 30% on courses, so head to fitnessnetwork.com.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Phylex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar, 
at phylex.com.au.